0: Welcome to The Aura, a podcast that takes you inside and outside the work of art in discussion with those who create, curate, write, think about, and enjoy contemporary art. My name is Cheryl Sim, and I am Curator and Managing Director of the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal. Born in London in 1969 to Indian parents, Bharti Kher completed a degree in painting at Newcastle Polytechnic in 1991. To help her decide where to go next with her career, she flipped a coin. Heads would have her go to New York, and tails would be New Delhi. The coin came up tails, and in 1993 she set off to India. This proved to be an incredible turning point for her life and work as the energy of the city would influence an extension of her training as a painter, to engage with drawing, photo, installation, text, and most of all, sculpture. She employs ready-made materials and found objects to create works whose underlying processes of creation reveal painstaking processes of technical inquiry and intimacy. Through subtle clues and formal seduction, she explores a multitude of themes including hybridity, the realm of the feminine, the body, and the non physical in the material world. During the installation of her exhibition, Point de départ, Point qui lit, presented at the Phi Foundation in the spring of 2018, I had the pleasure of discussing the journey that has so greatly informed her work. Barty Care, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us in Montreal to work with you on this show. It's been an, such an amazing collaboration and I've just been really amazed to you know hear you talk about the work and also to be privy to this physical sense of embodiment that, that I get from your work. Thank you very much for accepting to do a show with us. <laughs> um, I
1: just want to say thank you so much for having me. It's been quite a wonderful experience making this exhibition. I think it's looking quite beautiful and, um, it's been really nice to work with the team Mm -hmm. they're very professional they're very good they're great art handlers so indeed yeah yeah they well done they love it yeah yeah you can see exactly that
0: there's a lot of um desire you know to do right you know Mm. to do right by the artist so talking a little bit about your you know the life art intersection your parents immigrated uh, to the UK as adults, and um, you and your siblings were born in London, Mm -hmm. you grew up in Surrey, Um, your father worked in textile design, and your mother sold textiles in her own shop, where you would often play Mm. as a child. Um, What was it like growing up in the UK in the 1970s? don't forget for for me growing up in the uk it
1: was home so that was all i knew we're second generation um and uh certainly where i grew up in the suburbs of surrey there um maybe at the time there was it wasn't as uh plural as well, certainly it is now um but i went to uh i went to a, a school um a small girls' school in 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 Surrey. Um, there was quite a few foreigners there in in the school. Um, we had an amazing art teacher. I you know I, I like growing up where I was. I didn't know anything else. Um, my parents split up when I was quite young, uh, which was very unusual for Asians. Um, so my father always lived in London, and my mum stayed in Surrey. So we were kind of you know up and down quite a lot. So we got to travel and move around and be quite independent from very, very young age
0: actually. And you got a good sense, I guess, also of a kind of suburban and a very urban yeah. environment. You know, yeah. London where it's like super bustling and yeah. then the suburbs where I would imagine it was a little quieter.
1: Yeah, a lot more conservative certainly. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. um we well I and my sister certainly we always like to be in the city and in London. And uh, London's a great city. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's multicultured it's vibrant there's a great music scene mm-hmm. we used to go to a lot of concerts right um and um lots of clubs yeah and, yeah you know, and that's and that's what you did so um but I mean certainly um Surrey was uh, you know at that time it was the it's, it's small town these are small right. towns in in England um yeah. it's it's unique for its um eccentricities but also culturally very specific to you know certain types of um i mean if you'd say it if you're in another country just to like local traditions i mean things like the derby um you know when the queen would come past on on coronation day she'd like drive through and everyone would stand on the side of the road and wave the british flag and stuff and Mm -hmm. Yeah, we sort of you did all of that, Because um, yep. you, you were you know you were young British
0: exactly. population
1: civilians. That's what you that's what you were, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's what you did. I mean, um, I didn't have an
1: inkling at that time that I was going to be living in India, right? Right. So and I, I think
0: I remember in an early conversation that we had that you were like I was the I would have been the last person yeah. that I thought would have decided to to absolutely. to go and live in India. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I
1: think pretty much I think a lot of people who knew me were quite surprised that I went and sort of never came back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you spoke a little bit about uh, being in a really great school which, where art had a kind of central focus or gave you an opportunity to really um, make use of the fact that you love to make things mm. with your hands. Mm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the teacher or uh, what it was about this school that helped you solidify your commitment mm. to taking an artist path. It's not that obvious. It's it can be really painful, I think, to decide this is what I'm gonna do.
1: Mm. I mean, I wouldn't say particularly it was the school. I'd say it was much more about the person. So there was a teacher at at school, um his name was Martin Shaw. And um he was quite an enlightened teacher. So he opened a door for me certainly and I walked through it. And I think what he gave was the opportunity for someone who was interested um, was to look at this huge range of um, making in some ways um, and uh, to teach you that materiality was not something that you needed to be afraid of. So he, he was a very unique and dedicated practitioner um, teacher. Um, so he taught us life drawing. You do strange things. And now when I think about it, I just think this is just extraordinarily brilliant. I mean, I remember spending two weeks only drawing the backs of people's heads, <laughs> thinking it was the most stupid thing. But now when I think about it, I was thinking, well, maybe what he was trying to say, or maybe what he was trying to show us is that when you look at the, behind someone, you draw them from the back of their head in the hope that maybe... The drawing will reveal something about the front of the head. Of course, when you're young, you don't think about things like that. But when you're presuming that young people and you're talking to them like adults and you're talking to young artists the same way you would talk to 16 year olds, 20 year olds, your senior students, that shows an enormous respect, but also... To not take for granted the fact, or to not underestimate our visual capabilities, mm-hmm. even when you're very young, and I think that is really unique. And I don't really know that many teachers who were as inspiring as as he was. We were not allowed to use rubbers in the art room, mm-hmm. so we used to draw in biros and wax crayons. And biros tried a biro is impossible, but I still draw in biro now.
0: Kind of difficult medium to you can't make, uh, like to, you know, sort of redo lines You can't whatnot. redo anything. Yeah, exactly. So
1: we were doing um, Dry Point. Um, so we were looking at the works of, you know, Leonardo, Michelangelo, mm-hmm. Garibaldi, um, Van Dyke, Van mm-hmm. Eyck, all of them, and we were looking at a lot of paintings, Titian,
0: mm-hmm. William
1: Blake, um, just everything from magic realism to, you know, the Renaissance masters. We were encouraged to see exhibitions. Henry Moore was one of his favourite artists at that time. Um, So we'd always look at a lot of sculpture. Henry Moore dealt a lot with the negative spaces in the figure. And I think that was something that he was particularly interested in. So the art room was, for me, a really magical place. And um, we used to have in the art room, he used to breed tropical fish, but very rare rare tropical fish. So the art room was uh, um, dissected by very large fish tanks that are about three meters long by a meter wide. And he would build them all himself and then breed tropical fish. And he used to have this uh, species of cichlid. And uh, they're an African um, species of of, uh, rare tropical fish that keep their young in the pouches of their mouths. So when they would breed and you'd walk into the art room, the mother would then like suddenly gather all her young into Ah, this sort of swooping and like in they would go in her mouth. And it was also really interesting because when they would, if she felt that she knew you, she'd let them stay out. And so, you know, eventually after time and you would keep going in and you'd stand close and eventually she'd just open her mouth and she'd let them all out again. And if she recognized your footsteps or she recognized your presence, sometimes she wouldn't call them. And that sort of felt really mm -hmm. special because you thought, oh, wow, I'm talking to animals now. I'm talking to fish Mm -hmm. and the fish knows me. Therefore, the art room now is kind of my space. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So there was all these interesting, you know, spaces that we would we had a small dark room, which was the size of a basically an attic mm-hmm. I mean it was tiny it was just a cupboard with a dark space <laughs> and we used to develop black Incredible. and white films in there um, so we were doing a lot of really interesting no, it's, things it's
0: really it's really quite astonishing to me because when you hear you describe this space I think it's um, you know like first year bachelor of fine arts yeah. but you're talking about you know you're seven School. eight years old yeah, nine so, years old yeah, kind of thing that's yeah. like fantastic. And by the time we
1: were 12 we were doing life drawing
0: That's a really rigorous and but not rigorous in the sense that if you have like, kind of, I guess, rudimentary expectations of people, but as you're saying, Martin Shore was Mm. like, no, perfectly capable, perfectly, you know, sponge like and he he taught you like he was not he wasn't thinking about your age, he was thinking about you as artists.
1: Yeah, as artists at a young age. And also, you know, we used to we used to do things like um, used to make your best drawing of you know life studies we do a lot of life studies Um, and life studies were always rope lots of rope Mm -hmm. um, a table um, usually something like a curtain fabric it would have something hard like a skull obviously or an animal bone Um, a glass of water always water so you'd have to draw reflections really difficult things Um, and if we would complain we would always be taught how to draw the space around it And when we thought we did a great drawing he'd sit down and You know, once in a while, he'd just pour ink over your drawing and say, so I'll show you how to make this better. Mm. And from the mess, somehow you muddled through. But it was always that you're never finished. This drawing is never finished. This work is never over. Mm. There's no such thing as a finished Mm -hmm. piece of work. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you can always start again and you Mm -hmm. can always erase. But you have to know the point of um, when you're trying to bring something back out of itself... You have to know when to stop.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was quite a rigorous. Um, mm-hmm. It was quite a rigorous training, and I spoke about it recently. Where I just said, it, in retrospect, it seems easy now to understand what was happening. At the time, it took me many years to think, like, what, would, <laughs> what was that? It was always it a challenge. Yeah, the method. There was a mm. method
0: to all that yeah, madness. Absolutely. So you do um, a. An undergrad degree in painting in Newcastle Polytechnic. Right. Um, you finish in 1991, yeah. and you take a year off, figure things out, uh, and then you decide you want to make a move.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you flip a coin. Mm. Heads, New York. Tails, New Delhi. It comes up tails, and, you're, and you relocate. Mm. You know, you you leave home behind. Well, I went on a six-month visa.
1: Right. And a travel sort of okay. I'll go traveling, and I'll come back in six months, but I didn't. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's been thirty some odd years. Twenty five years. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've made your life there, mm-hmm. and as your artistic practice really expanded, it really kind of blew up because, from what I understand, you were doing figurative painting. Mm-hmm. When you're in uh, when you were in Newcastle, and then you also had a little studio. You mm-hmm. decided to get a studio mm. or commit to having a studio in New Delhi. What was it about India? What was going on? And what did you observe? I mean, you had this incredible power of being witness to this mm. environment, you know, given your insider/outsider knowledge. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, talk to me about what that energy was, what what you were seeing, and how it relates to bringing you to, you know, the big question, which I feel permeates all of your work, which is the body mm. and sculpture, mm. physical, tactile, uh, messy, mm. all of these things. India must have been... Yeah, I
1: mean, India was quite a shock when I first mm.
0: arrived, um, like it would be for
1: many young 22-year-olds mm-hmm. who've never been much further than Europe. Um, but I think I am i was, and I certainly was when I was young, I was quite adventurous. So I think India was just a new experience and I was ready to welcome it. And um, I was observing, I was quite fearless, so mm-hmm. I was just pretty much going wherever I needed to go and going out and seeing places and sightseeing and staying with family. It was certainly not as open um, and... Yeah, I observed at some point it was quite conservative. Um, but there was an energy of mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. And that was not apparent to me at the very beginning. It took time. Um, I also met my husband very early into my trip into India. And uh, as we're both artists, we decided that um, we would work because basically that's what we both do and we we continue to do Um I think sometimes having a companion sort of helps. It gives you a bit more strength. Mm. So studio became the center always. Um, And you started to notice that the rest of India, the art scene was very young. It was nascent. Everyone kind of knew each other but didn't. There was a very strong school of um, narrative painting that came out of Baroda. Um, There were many schools in India, but... There seemed to be also this group of young Turks who right. came from nowhere. Yeah, They weren't from the right colleges. They hadn't been to the schools. They hadn't done MAs. They didn't um, conform to the gatekeepers of art. And uh, they weren't sort of their companions, friends, students. And I always call them a sort of the bastard generation, actually. <laughs> and I sort of say there's like these un with no bloodlines, right? Who arrived in the city, and there were about there was quite a few of us, and we all became friends and uh, started to show work. I always felt that India in the 90s was like England probably was not that I'd know but what I felt England might be like in the 60s not in terms of a sort of you know flower power revolution but certainly in terms of if you want to be an artist you just make art and then you say I am one Mm -hmm. if you want to be a filmmaker you just be one you go work somewhere and you you count up your hours and eventually there was scope and space for you to dream Mm-hmm. and sometimes it felt for me certainly that you know spaces like london or or maybe even new york were quite saturated it was hard to f- navigate your way right. through um the right school the right place that knowing the right people you didn't really have to know anyone All you only had to do is do things so you know we used to make exhibitions in our houses and then just call up a bunch of friends and people always drop through delhi it's a kind of transit city so a lot of visitors come. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, certainly at the beginning, it was there wasn't so much access to people who were coming because um, actually no one was really paying any attention to anything, and <laughs> any of us did really anyway. To
0: be perfectly honest, which is also kind of freeing no yeah because then you can do you can just try so much stuff and fail at so much stuff and then try new stuff yeah so the conditions of possibility were so ripe actually at that time that you just happened to be there forming your own community
1: making mistakes making terrible work um, (laughs) you know yeah actually not I mean also not doing a whole lot I mean if I think about now what I would do a week it's kind of ridiculous really I mean when you're young it's the it's also you're just living you're learning how Mm -hmm. to live alone Mm -hmm. you're learning how to make some money Um, you're trying you're hustling and you're trying to buy canvas and paint and material and that's expensive and you're trying to work out how you're going to pay your rent and whether you should get the bus somewhere or the you know or a taxi Mm -hmm. I mean that's a big deal uh (laughs) Because, you know, everything's about money. And so um, quite early on, both of us got a couple of great breaks, which allowed me certainly to run my studio for a year. So those were really important times. So whenever I made money or we made money, we put it back into our work. Right. And that became, okay. let's pay the rent for three months. Let's go and buy some materials. So for six months and then we work. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. In six months, exactly. you think about what we're going to then, do after that. Yeah.
1: yeah, and it was also a time that you could call people and you had to be quite um, enterprising yes. to get people to come and see your work. Mm. Um, and, you, and, you know, it's really one step at a time. And once you're on the wheel,
0: right. you, you just
1: keep taking one step forward. Exactly. And You just keep going one thing at a time, one thing at a time, one exhibition,
0: mm-hmm.
1: one work in one show, one work in another show, one work in another show.
0: There's um, a work that I think of, which gives gave me a, a sense of just how much chutzpah you have, mm. uh, that you were young and you were going around taking photographs of men's mustaches. Yeah. I mean, that's really gutsy. (laughs) You know, because out in the streets, um, from what I understand, it's like really male-dominated out there. And and very few women. Women are in the private sphere or the domestic sphere. And and, and you're out there saying, could I please take a picture of your moustache? The camera is a very powerful tool, you see. Um, It sort of lends
1: you authority in a strange way. But it also detaches you from the person. Um, The public space in India is, yes... Um, in the nineties it was you know it was predominantly um, a male space if you'd go to a cinema then you know there would be you know eighty percent men mm-hmm. and for for a European for someone who's lived in europe that's it's noticeable mm-hmm. but for people who live there it's kind of normal it's it's that that's their life uh, mm-hmm. the public space changed a lot and it's changed a lot since then also don't forget that working women in India there are many mm-hmm. the working classes are in all spaces right. It's just the middle classes who sort of um, have sort of a value of sort of a level of decorum, which means you don't sort of do this, or they with their children, or they're going to school, or whatever, or they penetrate the Mm -hmm. public space much less.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So, yeah, when I made the piece, her suit, um, it was really a way for me to go out into the public and uh, invert the whale gaze, right, and um, sort of make these. They turned out to be these like paintings of men's moustaches which strangely started to look like female anatomy right. you know and they're really interesting so i made two i took 252 pictures over the period of a couple of months but also it was a good way for me then i had to go out every day and do something
0: right and so, talk to people i didn't know yeah that was so it was like a, it was a research tool yeah you know the camera people actually was were like generally
1: a... very nice most men mm-hmm. would be like yeah of course you could take my <laughs> picture of my moustache
0: get <laughs> quite happy yeah, yeah. um so let's talk about materials mm. and the sort of central force or inspirational force or kind of need for you to work with materials. And mm. in, in particular, I mean, you have a um, an abiding interest in ready-mades, in found objects mm-hmm. um, and other materials that may seem incongruous, but you bring them together and something else happens. Uh, but I'm, most prolifically and it's sort of become a signature for you is the use of the bindi Mm -hmm. so tell me about that evolution of use of material because when you first saw the sperm bindi on a woman in a market and Mm. then you thought i must have these Mm. where do i get these Mm. (laughs) and you like went into a shop shopkeepers and just said i'm i'm taking them all (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) give them all to me and then you just sort of had them Mm. you didn't necessarily have an idea for them right away but Mm. you were um, enchanted um, by what the possibility of this dot could be the dot being like this open thing The, the bindi also having all of these kind of conceptions misconceptions as well culturally and whatnot y- your mm. interest was in the con- what it could do conceptually as a material and not mm. necessarily as what it meant mm. you know kind of culturally no absolutely
1: i think that's kind of fundamental and don't forget the bindis also already made yeah um, right so i think the way that i approached it was that here is something that already has its own narrative i'm not here to change it and I'm not here necessarily to talk about it. What I'm what you know, I am here to talk about it, but I think the idea was that it already has its own narrative, in the same way that I when I buy ready made objects, I'm aware of the inherent narrative in each object, if it's a staircase or a chair or something. I'm interested in perhaps that they carry a remnants or a residue of the people that own them. Um, a memory of the people who sat in them or walked down the stairs so the Bindi is a ready-made new object Mm -hmm. it has the potentiality of meaning as it sits on a woman's between her two eyes and at the end of the day she'll take it off and put it on a mirror or throw it away but then that is the residue of a day in the life of one person if that is a mark of your consciousness then I ask what do you see Mm. and so the the conceptual underpinning of the bindi works is fundamental to how I use them, that they represent a form of consciousness. And also that when I activate them or I use them on a surface, it's not that you only engage with the work, the work also looks back at you. And that activation of material for me is interesting because it's about marking and making material alive. And this is what art is about. I name something and I take you on that journey with me. And it's really a leap of faith because wood is wood and clay is clay and steel is steel. But I'm asking you to come and I'm asking you to believe me when I say steel is something else. Mm-hmm. Or a sari can be something else. It has the possibility of being something else. And that's what's interesting for me as an artist.
0: Mm-hmm it's It's amazing just how the kind of the multiplicity of uses that you've gotten out of this material, and there doesn't seem to be any any end in sight yet to what the possibilities are. You kind of create these kind of graphic, topological, kind of abstract, swirling moments where you know colors and and textures um, enliven the surface mm. um, you know sort of as 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 paintings. And then they also can mark and trace objects that you found. So, yes, the staircases and chairs and you make them as skins Mm. for other animals. I mean, this sort of recollection of the fish Mm. kind of really made me think about how much animals have an important place in your your kind of cosmology Mm. in the way you see the world. So there's all of these possibilities for for the bindi. And I had no idea. We have a work in the show where the bindis are huge Mm. that are part of virus Mm. and that that the variety of them, shapes and sizes and Mm. colors Mm. is kind of limitless. Yeah. So you just keep, you know, you you have like a, you know, I was joking with you. You have like a bindi pusher. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's like, what do you got? Yeah. (laughs) I'll take them. Every size, every color. Right. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about these works that came out in the mid two thousands that I find uh, really intriguing, because you call them the hybrids. Mm. I'm very interested in in the concept of hybridity, because also as a you know a person of color, um, mixed heritage, mm. um, but born in North America, and kind of spent my entire life answering the question, where are you from? Mm. Um, and I definitely see myself as culturally North American. Mm. Like, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. But also when I travel, if I go to, you know, China or or the Philippines, there's no doubt that I am definitely not from there. Yeah. <laughs> and so I sort of fashion myself a, a kind of hybrid, or I'm interested in what are the possibilities, mm. the potentialities of this kind of hybrid mutancy thing mm. that happens when you take something and you combine it with another and you put it in a different context. And I feel like you you have these questions too in a lot of your work. And yeah. I kind of think it's a through line, but mm. it comes out you know really strongly in this photo series you did in the mid-2000s. Yeah,
1: the hybrid series. And so these were the works. These were a series of five photographs that I made that became really the beginnings of all the casting sculptures that I made Mm -hmm. after that and Mm -hmm. all the hybrid women or what I call the urban goddesses. Mm. So they started off much more sort of hybrid animal, human, part human, part animal. And I think I've always... I mean, even the paintings I was making at school, actually, um, even the paintings I was making at college, if you look back to see some very early works, this has always been... The animal has been a very... Um, consistent concern of mine and I've made and I've painted and I've drawn a lot of animal forms. How I see them is that empathy is a very powerful tool and somehow humans have an affinity and an empathy towards animals and so when you show them you can show the worst or the good or other parts of being human through animals Mm. and when i make the humans they become quite animalistic and when i make the animals they become quite human Mm -hmm. and so you're able to use the contradictions of both of these um very sort of defined mammal Mm -hmm. form Mm -hmm. to um to then have a conversation with the other and so when you put them together I mean, the hybrid form is not a new form. Mythology is replete with hybrid forms. Um, And I just felt that they allowed me to talk about the multifaceted, the multifarious, the idea of um, the many roles that we play as as women, as mothers, Mm -hmm. as wives, as Mm -hmm. sisters, as daughters. Um, uh, And also to fantasize to go into the realm of to talk about things that were not easy violence vulnerability fear you know a lot of us are it's almost an oxymoron we're terrified of being afraid aren't we yes right we're terrified you, of fear everybody's yes. terrified violence female violence is right. something that society uh, somehow it, it's 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 a very difficult subject to broach um aggression Mm -hmm. in in women in
0: women yeah we're Um, not permitted to kind of have rage you know to let that be part of the vocabulary of what it is to be female
1: yeah so some of these works i was able to explore and those areas but not without peril Mm. um, because i i did realize that rage is something um how do you express rage what does it mean Can art express rage? I think I tried to talk about that when I was casting of the Six Women piece. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, can this work express my utter rage or is it my despair? I'm Mm -hmm. not really sure. Mm -hmm. So even in the hybrids, it was like a very early form of... um, you know, so there's the, there was five five pieces. I I I actually thought to make ten. Some of them are not sort of terribly. I mean, I think they're kind of beautiful as well as strong. These mm-hmm. women are, they're they're fearsome but yes. also vulnerable. So the ones with the mother and the child, the angel pieces. I mean, that's my daughter. Yeah, um, she's like six mm-hmm. months old. She's tiny, mm-hmm. and she's made blue. Right, right, because uh, you know Krishna was always blue. The male god was always blue. And I was like, well, no, actually, my little girl, God, she's going to be blue, too, because, you know, she's like an angel. She's Mm. like this little and she's going to be sort of this little fearless bat monster. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think she looks lovely in it.
0: (laughs) And then you actually cast bodies and, and sort of realized these photographic images that you made in in actual life-size sculptures. yeah well these became almost like the drawings right Right. so they
1: became the drawings for larger sculptures and I hadn't when I was making the photographs I I didn't think about making them as sculptures because in themselves in the in the early 2000s to make an image of this resolution required um, like at that time you had to photograph the works at 600 dpi on slides drum scan them Insane. take them to an a- apple you know computer shop where it was like you could scan them at that resolution bring them onto a computer render them for an hour and a half oh, God. you know yeah. so and then that's how we made these images and wow. the largest size i could make them was 45 inches high hmm. i mean it was really until the resolution completely exploded right so um so it was kind of it's an interesting process to make these and i stopped at 5 because I was almost blind by the amount of time I spent in front of a screen, and I realized maybe I didn't want to do anymore. So maybe I had enough to start with the next uh, maybe I could go and make some sculptures
0: and the sculptures are are also uh, they take it up another notch because mm. then you're you're confronted with an actual you know physicality um, yeah. of a person, yes. Mm. And I love them mm. because they, they have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. They're dark as mm. well. But, you know, these these beings are fierce, you mm-hmm. know. The, there's this kind of edgy femininity. Mm. And they're still very feminine yet, yeah. you know, which I, which is... A,
1: unabashedly right. so. So right. it was always like celebrate. This idea that you could also celebrate your femininity and be a woman and also be everything else that you needed to be because you kind of had to in Mm -hmm. some ways. And I was trying to make these um, sculptures of these... Futuristic, maybe from the past. You don't really place them anywhere. You can't see who they are. They have no ethnicity. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that's really yeah. important because right. I was like, well, so are they Indian? No. Are they African? No, they're not. Are they Chinese? No. No. Are they, well, some of them are green, mm-hmm. you know, so they're supposed to be sort of alien and,
0: um, but still female. But still female,
1: <laughs> and and hybrid, and the, you know, right. one will have a horse leg, and because yeah. she's got to be fast, and the other one will have something else because she needs, uh, you know, she needs wing power. Someone I know recently wrote about that called them my ex women.
0: Oh right, like superheroes, <laughs> yeah. super yeah. heroines. Yeah. Um, did did these hybrids? kind of bring about a pivotal moment in your career in your Absolutely. in the direction.
1: Yeah. They were a, they were a turning point. Um it sort of um, opened up a opened up a new space of one making um sculpture to investigation into the body casting. Yeah. Um and it took time. I mean you it slowly one at a time. Um but the thing is, with my practice, I, I work in quite a broad spectrum of range of, of the kind of works I make at the same time. So I don't sort of start one thing and finish it. Mm-hmm. I start one thing, put it down for a while, go off, do something else, come back to this thing maybe after three months. Um, some I, I think it's because um, I'm quite restless, I think, in the studio. So I procrastinate quite a lot. So I don't know what to do because sometimes the works don't talk to me. So... It's not that I only wait for them to talk to me and then I move. It's just sometimes things need to be left alone for a while to just filter out. And this idea of going back and just saying it's kind of not finished, allow it to take its own time. So I, I, I kind of work on many projects at the same time, usually about seven or eight and that could be a casting, and some bindi work, and some photography, right. and th- and then they all at some point start to talk to each mm-hmm, other. Mm-hmm. It's like keeping all the plates spinning, and you just sort of keep them spinning enough so they don't yeah. completely yeah. fall down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> into one a, by one, into until they like, okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um,
0: I want to talk a little bit about the sari, and uh, I have a uh, really uh, kind of obsessive interest in um the use of clothing in art um, but also because the sari has such incredible um signification to the individual woman but it also is this connector it's a connection mm. type mm. of clothing you know i i'm obsessed with the chinese chungsam and like what that means mm. and um you know who can wear it and who can't there's still a lot of women who uh, were born in Canada of Chinese heritage, who feel like the shengsam only belongs to Chinese women and no other mm. ethnicity of women really should be wearing them unless she, unless she really knows what it means and where mm. it comes from and has respect for it. You you bring the sari into your work as a, a way of talking about the narrative, the individual, um, but also... There's also a kind of sense of community around the sari.
1: Yeah. Again, I think when I started using them, it's like the bindis, I started for one reason. The investigation opens and slowly you find that you've opened another door and you're somewhere else. And then you allow the material and the work to speak its own language. And then I think I learned so much about textiles and fabric and saris over the past few years because... I've started to use them a lot in my work. Mm-hmm. I also began to notice them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I've been in India for 25 years. I didn't care to notice um, for many years. When I started to use them in my work, I started to buy them. Right. And when I started to buy them, I started to notice other people wearing them. I started to wear them. Yes. When I started to wear them, it was a game changer. And huh. in some ways, I started to understand the physicality, the mm. movement, mm. Uh they're very sensual and also very feminine yes and um it's also a way of uh, a six yard unstitched garment that's used both as a for the living and for the dead and I find I find the narratives and the histories around textiles to be I it's really interesting because um you know You can see from the way what kind of sari someone's wearing, where it's been made, um, which area of India it's come from. It's like ethnicity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's regionality mm-hmm. so this is from Assam this sari is from right. Calcutta right. you know this is a weave that was done in Orissa mm. this is an ikat print from here this mm-hmm. is a silk banasari this is and so all these different types of saris talk about a very long and old tradition of um, weaving and um, it's fascinating I'm learning more and more actually There's a very, very large textile and revival of saris now in India, too, of of wearing of them. And so it's almost... uh, uh, Is it
0: like a revival? Like, Do young women also wear It's Yeah,
1: it's become quite... uh, uh, Yeah, they do much more now than Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of wonderful, actually.
0: We were talking about how, you know, when you're wearing um, sort of a marker of ethnicity... And mm-hmm. clothing that you really, as a, you know, a contemporary person, you just, you want to rock it differently mm-hmm. than, you know, say how ne- women of another generation might have. Sure. Sure. And so that hybridity moment mm-hmm. becomes really um, productive because you you make a statement about your position mm. and, um, and how you want to represent yourself to the world instead of well, sort of
1: fashion isn't it and right. fashion 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 is great <laughs> i love fashion me
0: too <laughs> yeah
1: i i mean my a lot of my family's in fashion my parents i mean my father was a textile consultant so fabric and something that we've known and i've grown up with my whole life um i like textiles i like beautiful yeah. i like i like fine fabrics and mm. i like I like the weight of them, the smell of them. I like mm. what fabric can do. I like mm-hmm. I like clothes.
0: Mm-hmm. But It's There's just fascinating <laughs> to see, you know, how people want to yeah. kind of represent themselves oh. to the world. And oh. it and it really is that kind of, you know, specific choice. Even when people say, "Oh, I have no style." That's a style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're making a conscious decision yeah. whether you realize it or not. <laughs> yeah.
1: Even if you think you're not.
0: Right. Yeah. And so, so all of these things are extensions of the body. Um, even your use of furniture mm. are all extensions. Casting is like this desire to capture the essence. Um, I love this thing you say uh, about using furniture because because you say it's like the smell of human contact still mm. lingers. yeah. And even you know, years after, perhaps, but we don't know the way you use them whatever happened on these stairs, it could have happened five minutes ago, mm. you know, that's...
1: Or 25 years ago. Right. And the ghosts of the people that went through them linger in the residue of the objects that are there, and they stay there. And so it's it's a way of... It's a way of... Um, it's my madness. It's a way for me to reiterate that material can be activated, that art, there is an element of faith when you make art because what you're doing is and i say it i say it quite a lot that you're activating materials all the mm-hmm. time and you're asking materials to be to have potential and i like that mm-hmm. i i like the fact that i can make something in clay and if i fire it there's a kind of chemical reaction that makes it hard and these are two elements that come together to create the third thing and and that's a very basic example, but then when you when I use the furniture works, or if I create an absence, say if I present a staircase and I throw a chair down it, um, there's a sense that a situation has happened,
0: something. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's when you let us as as mm. visitors, viewers, in to the work, yeah, because you leave it open, and then then we can participate. Sure. sort of actively in fashioning narratives or wondering or, you know, kind of just feeling the drama, you know, of, of, uh, of what could have been. And your titles do that as well. Mm. They offer us uh, an entry point, mm. but you'd never close off the meaning no. at the same time, you know, for us. I read something recently where you said, if I had to start from, again as an artist, I might have been a minimalist painter. And yet, and Isn't then you're funny. like, bah, but I'm a maximalist. <laughs> so I was like, oh, do you th- would you consider yourself a maximalist or yeah. a minimalist?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just like, there's a part of you that wants to keep it, is is to erase, erase, mm-hmm, erase to mm-hmm, the purity mm-hmm. to get. And I think I, I try to do that in this super maximal approach I yes. have, because I think I... I do tend to push out all of the superfluous in the work because a lot of my projects are, um, they take a lot of time, there's a lot of research, um, I there's a lot of failed um, tests and failure projects that run up to the final piece. And I sort of think at some point, I well, I used to and I don't anymore. I have to admit who I am. Um, I used to think that, yes, my work, there is a certain element of minimalism. I used to think about the Bindi works at some degree in in, in that way. But, you know, they're really not. Mm-hmm. And um, they have all the intensity of human experience. And they're as intense as what we see. I mean, I I like the fact that I like knowing that I process mm-hmm. 375,000 images Every sixty right, seconds, right, right. you know, I love that. I was like, "Wow, really?" <laughs> yeah. So you you feel like a computer. So when people right. say to me, "I I can't see," I don't know how to see, and you'd be like, "Well, you do actually, because you've been seeing since the second you were right, born, right. and your eyes are processing these much images, and these are being transmitted to your brain through neurons and through cell mm-hmm. s- cell communication. You think you don't know how to see, but you do mm-hmm. because you're doing it, and you're doing it intuitively. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. you see, maybe artists are people who see. Maybe artists are people who see keenly mm-hmm. because you train you, you, you train you're to look. to look yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's really that simple. It's like musicians are trained to hear, mm-hmm. so when they listen to an orchestra playing, they're able to pick mm-hmm. out certain right. things and and so the bindi works and um, the sort of idea of. Uh, of minimalism is me is just I suppose it's just me asking myself what is the key thing that you see keep it to keep the purity of one idea and I think that's about as minimalist as it's going to get actually in this lifetime
0: <laughs> well you know what I feel comes out of the practice is this incredible formal sumptuousness but that's also has um deep deep Uh, conceptual underpinnings and for me that really captures it all so that um, you know there you have all kinds of ways to to feel you know Mm. to feel the work it's like hitting you intellectually as well as emotionally and then and then there's that tactile thing that kind of deliciousness that Mm. you know that is a a kind of satisfying but also it's satisfying and it kind of leaves you wanting more um which I find a kind of amazing accomplishment. Uh, you know, you have to. I, I I always think that when you make
1: uh, as a maker, you have to engage right. every sense. Right. So I have to captivate you with. Uh, to make art, you have to be like a snake. You have to. You have to hear with your tongue, and you. If I can make you see with your nose and if I can make you hear (laughs) with your Mm -hmm. eyes and if I can make you see with your lips and Mm. you then there's some way of making that is not about what we know and how we experience life every day because essentially I make a load of things that nobody really needs (laughs) and um, art is this kind of a bit of a folly project in many respects but it's also one that, for me, has extraordinary value. Mm. And it's also a, a search for this sort of chimera. And if I'm going to search for it, then I have to use all the tools that I have. And uh, the senses are not there to be respected all the time. They are there to be messed up. Mm. And you have to take people on a journey of surprise sometimes. And sometimes I, that's what I look for when I make the work myself, I I'm looking for the surprises mm-hmm. in my own work, and when I find them, I mm-hmm. hold them, and I then I don't let the work go further than that.
0: Well, speaking of senses, there's one or I guess aspects of your practice that are multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. There's your writing. I I've come to understand that you have a really uh, dedicated sketchbook practice. Mm. And and writing, where you write about what's going on, about what's happening with the work, mm. and it's incredibly poignant. And and uh, I mean, I I wondered initially whether your writing was a research tool, mm. for, as part of your process, but I think it also is becoming another material. Yeah, I I I
1: write not really about the work. I kind of write to call into being the work, right. okay. and. I think it's a way it's a parallel it's the work as well. Mm. It is a work in itself in in some ways. Um, it's also a way for me sometimes to preempt uh what's happening. I think sometimes it's funny I make artworks that uh that I don't know myself, and then when I'm writing about them, I discover them
0: right. It's an yeah. incarnation of sorts. Yeah, they. Through... It's like
1: they communicate through my hands. It's really a strange yeah. thing, and I don't really know. It sounds a bit hokey pokey, but uh, it really does. <laughs> but sometimes when I write, it's like I'm not writing. It's just, it just right. Com- it just it issues forth. Yeah, it just, and I write.
0: Well, I was I was hoping you might indulge me because I have um, this beautiful publication that was put out by. Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum where you've done a residency and have a current project and it's sketchbooks and diaries and um, it's beautiful uh, selection of drawings but also
1: writings, pub- yeah,
0: writings. Mm. and I would w- wondered if you might read this sure. one <laughs> okay, from November 27th, 2014.
1: November 27th, 2014. Madam, Sister, Miss. Don't ever lose your voice or soften your tone, for there is a battle imminent. And although it's tiring making a noise, a lot of the time is kind of what's needed. Be brave. I hope you learn that the art of war isn't about fighting, although it's about psychology. The Japanese master said, A speciality of martial arts is to see that which is far away closely and to see what is nearby from a distance.
0: Yeah. Do you recall sort of what what was yeah what you were thinking of then I mean I love it because it it really is it's sort of a something that I would want to read when I was feeling like I wasn't giving myself the permission you know mm. to to be strong in a moment yeah, I was maybe just looking at for a time where I needed to move away and see
1: my life from a distance, actually. And just to say, OK, what's going on here, perhaps in the studio with work, in my personal life. Um, so sometimes you have to kind of give yourself, you have to kind of speak to yourself, don't you? We talk to ourselves mm-hmm. a lot. I yeah. do anyway. Yeah. I certainly talk to myself a lot. <laughs> um and if I had a battle at hand, I knew that I needed to be strong. And if that was a psychological battle, even if I may be tired, I need to... This mm-hmm. is not the time to sit down and take a tea break. Right, <laughs> you know? that's it. It's, it's time to time put th-
0: your hard hat on and go to yeah, work. Yeah, and go yeah. to work. And mm-hmm.
1: so, um, small. you know, everything, small things from career to family to life to dealing with your children, parents, they can all be... Um, Somebody saying something that's upsetting or hurtful. Uh, These are all journeys in our lives that we have to somehow learn and take study and take course with. And I suppose you at some time, you have to also learn how to deal with the psychology of yourself Mm -hmm. and who Mm -hmm. you actually are. Um,
0: Yeah, it sort of speaks a lot about uh, a kind of self-awareness and then kind of letting go. Of of what's not important, what's not serving yeah. you, yeah, you know, yeah, it takes time. <laughs> it does. Um, there's another one. I would love it if you would indulge.
1: So this one is May the twenty eighth, twenty thirteen. So it predates that one. When art brings quiet to a chattering world, it stands you still, and silence hangs over you. What color is silence? I think it's gray. Neither black nor white, just gray, like ash, like an elephant or a whale, like the pallor of a dead man, and of depression. It's the color of the umbilical cord and the moment when silence becomes the scream. Words help me describe it, but art also makes the gray matter light up again. So we have to make more art. We're all junkies in a way, and the trick is living.
0: Barty, thank you so much for sharing this moment with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Aura. This podcast was conceived by the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art and produced and recorded at the Phi Center in Montreal.